Who does grief better than Lars von Trier? Happy go lucky <laughs> Lars. And I hate that in a movie. I hate it so much. I had a reviewer write me personally who said, you're so sweet. He said, I'm very confused. <laughs> Welcome. It may not sound like a good time, but we're going to make it a good time. It's not sad. It's happy. We're talking about grief. Welcome in. This is the Fright Club podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com, and this is a topic that you've been trying to do for a while, right? But nobody would take the bait. That is correct. There are a couple of topics, actually, that I've been trying to do for a while. Grief and incest are the two that we could never get anybody to co-host on. I remember that because back when we were allowed to do songs, I was going to be ready with We Are Family. It was going to be right there, and I couldn't (laughs) wait, and it never happened. We'll still do it. We'll do it one of these days with just the two of us, I think. Oh, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, last time we talked about our favorite cinematography in horror. And actually, that was one. I'm surprised it took us that long to get to cinematography because cinematography is such a big part of movie making. We sort of saved it till, uh, you know, a while, a ways down the road. But I'm glad we did because we had a lot to talk about it. We got some great feedback. Well, if we had done it any sooner, we wouldn't have been able to talk about The Lighthouse. So that's oh. the reason. We knew The Lighthouse was coming eventually, and so we hung <laughs> on that long. I love it. Everything just aligned perfectly. <laughs> now I see the plan. <laughs> we got some great feedback. So there was originally some um, cry, outcry that we didn't talk about Mario Bava, but we did. All that means is that they read the blog and didn't listen to the podcast because we actually talked. And what do I always <laughs> say every time you're putting it together? I've said for a long time, don't pull it all in the blog because then people just want to know what movies are on the list. They read the blog and they don't listen to the podcast. And here is Exhibit A. No, what I'm going to do? I'm not going to pay attention to that. <laughs> <laughs> but we do talk about Bava. We talk about a whole bunch of people that didn't make the final the final actual list, because like you said, I mean, cinematography is so important and huge in horror. I mean, in film generally. But we got a couple of interesting mentions. Seth, uh, he thought maybe Curse of the Cat People should have been on there, which is, I, I can say yeah. right now, it never crossed my mind. Okay. <laughs> but we always love the feedback. We do. And then Omar had a good thought. He he thought that maybe we could have included Darius Kanji of Seven, who did Seven. Okay. And he yeah. and again he always he always then edits himself. He's like, I know, I know, it's not horror. I have said that before about seven, but I have to admit it also eventually did make one of our lists. So I'm waffling on whether or not seven is horror. It's a great movie though, and it looks amazing. It looks great. That might be the only bit of cin- cinematography that I would describe as looking mean. That whole movie oh, just yeah, looks mean. Yeah, it does. Yeah. No, it's a great it's a great suggestion. And uh, and it was a really fun podcast to do. Well, we do. Uh, we do have a special guest, and uh, to help us talk about this, we've got author and filmmaker Samantha Kuljesnik. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this should be fun, in quotes, fun, but it is because, <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually a, a great topic because grief is such a, a primal emotion. I mean, it's it's very easy to understand why it would be such fertile ground for horror. Right, because Absolutely. it's it's a miserable feeling, but it's also, I think, one of the reasons that I find grief fascinating, especially the way it plays out in horror movies, is because it's so unpleasantly honest and so personal. One of the reasons that I actually like the way horror handles it better than the way mainstream films handle it, mainstream films almost always, the whole point is, 
let's find a way to help this person through their grief, which really just means we are uncomfortable with this person's unhappiness and we need them to quit it. And I hate that in a movie. I hate it so much. And one of the reasons I think horror handles it well is because as a genre, you know, it embraces the uncomfortable nature of life. And so I think that you actually find it handled much better in horror films than you do in mainstream films. And so I've really wanted to talk about this for a long time. And I'm excited that, Sam, you were agreed to. And it's funny because what I did was send you a handful of topics that were options because we knew we wanted to have you on the podcast, wanted you to pick the topic you wanted. And this was the topic that you chose. Why do you think that is? Um, that's, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, piggyback, piggybacking off of um, what you said, I just think there are so many wonderful horror films that deal with the topic. And also, I think I gravitate toward emotional films, too. Like, I gravitate toward more serious emotional themes. So this one was of interest to me. And I think, too, once we get into these films, you'll see that they take d- different ways that grief manifests itself and how the characters deal with that, which is very interesting. And I think that's why you've got, in addition to the to the uh, films you've picked on this list, there's ones underneath that you also want to we want to discuss. That is that because they deal with grief in the same way that the film you picked did. That or because we're going to come across a couple of filmmakers who seem very preoccupied by it in one way or another, and you see it bleed into their work, even if it's not the main theme, which I just thought was fascinating. Okay. Well, we've got six. Fuzzy math. It's a fuzzy math day, and that's fine, as we count down our favorite horror films that deal with grief. So we'll start with one just from a couple of years ago, and this is set in 1825. Claire, a young Irish convict woman, chases a British officer through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness Bent on Revenge, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. Get me to the soldiers that came by this morning. It's too dangerous. Up north, they kill us. You sure you want to follow him? What are you doing? Ah! I don't want no trouble. You know what it's like to have a white fella take everything you have, don't you? I'm not your boy. I'm Mangana, the blackbird. You white ones go fast, fast, fast. Get nowhere. I go slow. Suddenly, she was free. The Nightingale, wow. Yeah, I was really excited to see this one because it was, you know, Jennifer Kent's follow-up to the, the Babadook, which I loved. I shouldn't say follow up too, but just, you know, it was her sophomore feature. It was really hard to watch. It was it was a brutal film to get through. Um, there were times when I actually wanted to quit watching it because it was so uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I made myself to to keep going. But yeah, it's just it's a absolutely captivating but brutal film. Yeah, and she has said Jennifer Kent has said in interviews that she had uh, two main inspirations for the movie one was the experience of a deep personal loss there's the grief and second just questioning the state of the world and uh, she wanted to explore violence and the fallout from violence and and was committed to making the film so shockingly violent and boy she did because i totally agree with you it was uncomfortable to watch in many instances it was absolutely that was interesting what you said about you know exploring violence in the world that was actually even stronger than the theme of grief. I know we're talking about grief, but in The Nightingale, it was really interesting to see how she played with um, 
you know, pe how people handled power and the exchanges of power and subjugation. And it did feel, I felt like while watching that, that it, it felt like a very, a godless representation of a world to where it was just, it felt almost nihilistic. Yeah. And I think like many good stories do, it transcended its setting to speak to today. Yeah, I think that the the film itself to me is is much more of a kind of meditation on colonialism on, you know, and and how we got where we are and what is wrong with the way we perceive history and and I think that the one of the reasons that it was so powerful was that it it you think it's Claire's story and I don't think it is. I think it's Billy's story. I think as uh, yeah. Claire we are so invested in her revenge tale because of everything that she's been through that we see us ourselves in her and then eventually she sees that she's actually a, a big part of the bigger problem, which is, uh, you know, I think we use her tragedy to say, yes, these colonizers are willing to exert their power in any horrific way they want uh, as they show us with this woman. And then as we get to know Billy, we realize if they're going to do it to this one woman, think of what they're going to do to this entire helpless population that they are overtaking. So I loved I love that about this movie. I think that's one of the reasons that it's so hard to watch. But the the vehicle to get us through that is the revenge story that's be, that has to do with her grief. And I and I think that similarly, although this movie has so little in common with the Babadook besides the writer director, I mean it's it's like the opposite of the Babadook in a lot of ways. It's all exterior. There's a big cast, you know. It's and the other is so interior. And um, but but Essie Davis's character, the mother's behavior, and the Babadook, I think, is often to a great degree, driven by grief. You know, it's she's she's in over her head with this kid, but it's because she's lost her husband. She's alone. I think Jennifer Kent is a magnificent filmmaker. It might be too soon to say, right? Just two movies in, but they're both so amazing and powerful. But I'm I'm fascinated by the way she utilizes grief as sort of a color in the films that she makes. Well, yeah, you mentioned it being Billy's story. You've got to give, give it up for Bay. I don't want to pronounce this right, and I know I'm going to get it wrong. Baykali Ganimbar who played Billy, fantastic, a fantastic mm -hmm. performance, as well as uh, these these names, Hazling <laughs> Franciosi yeah. played Claire. Yeah, they're both great. And S Sam Clayton, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he's much more of a well-known well -known name for this movie. But And uh, also Jennifer Kent's uh, dedication to just making this authentic. The language spoken by Billy and his people is a near-extinct language. This marks the first time ever it's spoken in a mainstream movie. Wow. Yeah, it's just stunning. Brutal, but stunning all the way around. That's the Nightingale from 2018. Number six. All right, number five. This is one also pretty recent from 2016. A, a determined young woman and a damaged occultist risk their lives and souls to perform a dangerous ritual that will grant them what they want. It's called a dark song. I have to hear his voice again. This is your last chance to back out. Seal it. You do know what we're taking on. A shifting consciousness. Becoming one with the ceremony. Pure. And may all my transgressions be washed. This is real stuff we're playing with. Real angels, real demons. Make me interested in you. How do we know that it started? Mommy. It's not your son. I know. No, 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 don't cross the line. We'll be stuck here forever. Maybe we should stop. We can't stop. 
I wasn't even aware of this, actually. I'd never heard of this movie until you brought it up, and I was very, really surprised to see that it was just in the last few years because it really slipped through the cracks, I think, at least for me. It's underseen, which is too bad, because it's a really good movie, and, and uh, Steve Oram, I think that's how I came across it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, and he makes a lot of very underseen <laughs> horror films. I mean, he's basically he's a comic actor, a British comic actor, and we've shown Sightseers, which is, you know, Ginger Beard. He's great in Sightseers. And then he also did another one just called Ah, which is about like the de-evolution of the population, which is also hilarious. This is not a funny film, not at all. It was a really big departure for him as the occultist. And then the mom, Catherine Walker, plays a grieving mother who has hired him uh, and they go to the secluded house where it's going to take probably a month at least of just all of this ritual work so that she can, she says, she's going to do all this because she just needs to hear her son's voice one more time. So her, you come to realize that her six-year-old son at some in the point in the recent past was kidnapped and murdered. And then, you know, as it goes along, you realize that there are different sort of motives at work and the relationship between the two characters the mother and the occultist is really fascinating i mean and and it is i mean the almost the entire film is just a two-man show you get to see some other sort of characters toward the end once you move into more of the spirit realm once the occult stuff finally starts to happen and it gets very very weird in a great way but the you know what i think drives the movie is the commitment these two different actors have to their characters it's just magnificent and then the very very end of the film it really winds up being a much more positive experience it's a kind of a lovely film toward the end but it takes some time to get there uh, but it's really just an impressive film and it's another one that sort of grief and revenge uh writer director liam gavin is the the filmmaker who put this together and it's another one kind of you know like like the nightingale like inside right where it's a mother's grief turns to revenge that's kind of the overarching theme to it which i think that this one plays on in a much more internal way you're you're much more inside the actual grief and horror of it than you are in in some of the others but in a way that's not uncomfortable unlike you know the nightingale it's not hard to watch it's really quite mesmerizing <laughs> it's good you say that because for anybody that hasn't seen it as soon as you compare anything to inside uh eyebrows are going up oh really <laughs> so <laughs> so it's not that brutal no not at all not at all it's and, and for at least two-thirds of the movie there's very very little bloodshed at all the bloodshed that happens is by accident and it's to the two people who are in the house so it is spooky it gets spooky more than it ever does get gory, but most of the film is about the relationship these two people are building, and they're both profoundly flawed characters and, to a great degree, unlikable, which, as you know, is something I always look for in, <laughs> in characters. I love that in a character. When a movie doesn't feel like you have to like these guys to stick it out. And this is, yeah, director, writer-director Liam Gavin. He only had 20 days to shoot the entire film, shot it all in Ireland. And actually, the ritual apparently is a real... Ritual performed in the movie called the Abramelin Operation, meant to obtain the knowledge and conversation of the ritualist guardian angel. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know it was a real ritual, but that is what they're trying to do. Let's, let's just go do it right after this. <laughs> <laughs> let's summon demons. <laughs> All right. Going back a ways for number four. This is from 1973. It's a classic, a married couple grieving the recent death of their young daughter are in Venice when they encounter two elderly sisters 
one of whom is psychic and brings a warning from beyond. Don't look now. What is it you fear? Christine is dead. She is dead. Did she die suddenly? You are warned. Things are not what they seem. Don't look now. Yeah, I've always loved this movie. It always feels kind of dreamlike to me. And I think, um, like several other films, the depiction of grief is something that he can't let go. Like, he can't let go of the the incident in which he lost his daughter. And so he keeps, you know, he keeps seeing her all, like, everywhere he goes, he's reminded of her. And he keeps seeing her. And I think there's always this, like, callback every time he sees her to wondering, you know, if he could have prevented it. It kind of hits you really hard when you see it. it like you said, it's like a primal emotion because... I think especially, you know, when a parent loses a child in the way that the character did in Don't Look Now, I'm sure that it weighed on those characters' minds constantly. Like, you know, could we have prevented this? Could we have done something differently? And so it's very haunting how he's reminded of that everywhere he goes in in Europe. Yeah, and it's, of course, become famous for the twist ending, but that's really not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how right. how, how, how it deals with grief, but uh, it's based on a short story by Daphne du Maurier, and, she yeah. had, and there were some changes made. I guess there were some changes made from the original story, but she loved it. She wrote a letter to director Nicholas Rogue and saying how much she loved the adaptation of the story, even though they made some changes. So that gives you a little insight as to how successful uh, they kept the themes intact, even if they changed some some of the particulars. Wow, that's wonderful. I agree that it's it's kind of the, the dreamlike nature of the film that really makes it work because you don't realize until the end that he's seeing his own future and that's what's confusing him. Yeah, the dreamy quality that Rogue gives the, the look of the entire movie, especially once they're in Venice, helps that, makes helps that really work all the way through in a way I think in a lot of films, it wouldn't. You'd know right away what it was he was seeing, or you would never get it at the end, one or the other. And in this case, it just is sort of seamless. It makes perfect sense. But I think the thing I like the best in terms of this list about this movie is that um, it's the one movie that is, first of all, unabashedly about grief. That's really all it's about. And then the other thing is that it shows the couple, because grief is such a personal, individual, very selfish emotion, necessarily. It's, it needs to be, that often it is something that will, it tears couples apart because they each deal with it in their own way and because they uh, they lash out at each other like as you were saying they probably both blame themselves and to a degree each other for what happened and so as much as they're trying to stay together and they need each other to comfort each other they're also pulling apart and I think that the way that's depicted in this movie is just perfect and gives the whole thing such a haunting reality underneath everything that is such a sort of visual unreality to it, that it is one of the reasons that the whole thing hangs together as well as it does. It's also interesting that in contrast to some of the other films on the list, I always felt like Don't Look Now focuses more on the father than the mother. Yes. Like I always felt more more of an emotional connection um, to that character. Like I felt like we get more inside his mind than we do with his wife's, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because usually I feel like with films that especially the films on our list that depict you know loss of a child it really explores motherhood more than 
you know, the mother's grief more than the father's. But in Don't Look Now, I think we really feel the father's grief very strongly. Yeah, I agree with you. And I definitely appreciate that. I think that that's really one of the reasons that the movie stands apart from a lot of the others. Because I think, not that, I mean, obviously, I put a lot of them on this list. Not that I have any particular problem with films that see a mother's grief as like the the one most insurmountable horrible emotion and mm-hmm. that's what they explore but I love that right. this movie sees the father's grief as being exactly as important and I think that that's that's wonderful there is one other movie that we'll talk about that does deal with a couple and and in that one it, it's interesting as much as I love the movie the father's grief is so secondary to the mother's that you, you sort <laughs> of start to think it's a deal man yeah this one too benefits so much from the just lived-in chemistry between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. I mean, they they just seem like a longtime married couple that have to, are having to deal with this in their own way, and it's just they're just they just seem incredibly comfortable with each other as actors, and it comes through with the characters. And don't look now, nineteen seventy-three, number four on our list of grief horror. And before we go any farther, uh, we mentioned Sam is an author and a filmmaker, and. We both loved her most recent, actually, I think it's your most recent project, the uh, horror novel True Crime. So tell us about that. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Yes, True Crime is my debut horror novella. Um, It was released in January of this year from Grindhouse Press. And it basically follows siblings Susie and Lim as they go on a cross-country murder spree after killing their abusive mother. It's been um, compared to the works of Jack Ketchum and J.F. Gonzalez by renowned horror author Brian Keene. Yeah, I've definitely seen many, many raves, so congratulations, and raves from us as well. Yeah, I love... Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I loved, genuinely. I just loved this book so much. And one of the things that I thought was so great about it is that you have the sense you know where you're going, and you absolutely do, as the reader, and you absolutely do not. And also, again... When a creator is comfortable enough with their characters that they, they're not asking you to like that character, I think the character becomes so much richer. And Susie is a great character. Tell me a little bit about how you sort of came up with the story. Well, it actually started as a short story a couple of years ago. I don't actually even really remember what initially inspired me to write it, but I I think it actually started with I won't, you know, spoil the novel, but the the anecdote about the dog, you know, the memory of the dog. And then I developed a short story from there. And the short story, nobody wanted to publish it. A few, you know, literary magazines, they gave compliments to it, but nobody wanted to say yes to it. So I just kept writing. I just kept working on it. I thought Susie and Lim were just such compelling characters as I was writing it that I just wanted to keep going with their journey. And anybody, and we encourage anybody to to go out and get it and read it. But if they listen to you on this podcast and then read that book, they're going to be going... No way, that nice lady is so dark. What happened? (laughs) I had a reviewer write me personally who said that. He said, you're so sweet. He said, I'm very confused. (laughs) And I didn't know what to say to him. I I think culturally now we just want to conflate creators with their work too much, you know, so it's it's interesting. And you, and now, so you have started your own press at this point. Is that right? Yes. I've started an independent horror press and it's called Off Limits Press. And we actually have our first release coming up August 10th. Uh, It's a novella that actually deals with grief. So it's very appropriate. It's called Crossroads by Laurel Hightower. Perfect. We had no idea. That just works out perfectly. Wow. It's just a, yeah, it's just a funny coincidence now that I think about it. It's, yeah, it's a central theme of the novella. So awesome. Well, congratulations on all that. Thank you. All right, getting back to the countdown, our countdown 
of grief and horror. A couple of movies, number three and number two, that are are linked, and you'll probably it'll probably be easy to figure out why. Number three is again from 2018. A grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. Hereditary. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Mom? I don't like this. Dad, I don't like this. What's happening? Pina! Don't you ever raise your voice to me! I am your mother! Raise your Mom, what's happening? Make it stop! Make it stop! This was an incredible debut a couple years ago for filmmaker Ari Aster, who said at the time he wanted to make a film about suffering that took suffering seriously. There's a lot of suffering in this movie (laughs) and trauma (laughs) and trauma. And it also I think there's just so many layers to this movie that you can it's one that you can go back and just dissect uh, in so many different ways. And I think it, it talks about not only suffering and trauma, but how that trauma and how that dysfunction is passed down through generations so much so we've talked about this movie before and we've and we've remarked how you could really remove the horror aspect from it entirely and i think it still works as a family in, in the family dynamic and what their dysfunction that they're passing down to each other and then you add all the horrific elements and i love that i totally loved it that it worked at the end it gets really really horrific it's, a, it's just a fascinating movie the way it dissects its own family and then asks you to to think about the connections by how they use the um, the miniatures, you know, and just st- really starting the entire film through that house, that miniature house. It's, just, it's entirely fascinating, especially for a debut. It was such such an assured and and confident vision, I thought, by him. Absolutely, I I like what you said about how you could take away the you know the traditional horror elements from it, and it would still work as a film. And I thought with hereditary as I was watching it. And I felt similarly with um, his, his second film midsummer as well, that like the horror elements of it, you know, the, and I say horror elements, I mean like the traditionally horror elements Mm -hmm. were sort of secondary to the other aspects. Like for me, like with hereditary, I felt like the grief and the suffering of the humans just from like, you know, the loss that they were going through, like the family's Mm -hmm. grief itself was, almost more horrific, you know, in its, its viscerality. Like that it was interesting how that sort of took a higher position than the other supernatural elements going on, at least yeah. for me. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. And I think enough can't be said about Tony Collette's performance because God, well, how miserable must this shoot have been? You know, <laughs> you're gonna start off at that sort of ten level of grief because you're burying your mom. Then you're just going to keep ratcheting it higher. You're going to go grief to the point of batshit insanity. Okay. And roll. I mean, she was, and she just nails it. She's so good. And the relationships inside that family are so weird from the very Mm -hmm. beginning that you're like, how much? Like, you know, it's, it's a fascinating notion about what was this family like before the the grandmother died because they're just a bunch of weirdos and then of course the, the it just looks glorious from the the actual house the miniature house the fire i mean everything about it is so meticulously and gorgeously put together but but yeah i mean um one of the things i think that Ariaster does 
is he puts you inside the head of somebody who's suffering unbearably and he won't let you out. I think, again, we're just two features in. But that's what I feel like is this sort of overwhelming feeling that I get watching his movies. And again, kind of like Jennifer Kent, this one and, and the next are so different in that the one is almost entirely interior and the other is is so open and exterior in daytime. And it's fascinating to me that he can tread a lot of the same emotions, but but explore it in such a physically and visually different way. Well, we've been alluding a lot to uh, his next movie, so it falls in line that we would bring it up next. So moving up to number two, it's his second from just last year. A couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled Midsummer Festival, and it's Midsummer. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skål! <laughs> what do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. I loved this movie. I just watched it yesterday, and I've been, <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about it, yeah. uh, you know, ever since. I loved it. I actually, he had an uphill battle to climb with me when I went into watching it because, um, I don't know why, but for some reason I expected to dislike it. Like, I thought it was going to be much different than it was. Hmm. And I found myself like I, I absolutely loved it. It actually it made me cry. It made me laugh. Yeah. It, it horrified me at one point. You know, it really touched on a lot of emotions. And I think it's a very it's a very intelligent film. And I think it packs a lot in there. And, you know, I think no matter how you would go about analyzing it, you could pick any different form of analysis and you you could find plenty to examine um, when you look at Midsummer, I wanted to touch on one part, you know, Midsummer. I watched it yesterday. And I was thinking about this podcast coming up with grief. And there was one scene in particular that really hit me hard. And it's when um, one of the cult member, you know, Pele, you know, who brings who invites them all there. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting with Danny and he's talking about not only their grief in the fact that they've lost parents, but he talks about a grief that I find that, that's very relatable. He talks about the grief for things we might have never had. So it's one thing to talk about grief of people you've actually lost, but it's also another thing entirely to talk about grief of maybe the family connections that you never had, mm. but always wanted. And that scene I felt like was so smart and, it, it kind of captured like in a very crystallized way, this like uh, the seduction of cults and the seduction of groups like that, yeah. you know, or the way that people can fall into even all sorts of relationships. It was a very just a just a very interesting scene to me to think about, like the grief of, you know, maybe connections that we never had, but see around us and want that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a really good point, because I have uh, I read at least one interview where he talked about. Really, the, the gist of the film is that the arc of Danny is that she is moving from one dysfunctional relationship into another one. And what you just right. bring what you just bring up tells you how that the pull that could could suck her in like that. That's a really good point. 
Yeah, you can see it, and obviously we don't get a lot of her her actual family dynamic, but you you sense that at least her relationship with her sister is quite problematic, and that maybe that has to do with why she's so determined to make it work with this other uh, romantic relationship that obviously is not working, and he's not the one for her, and then and then why she's drawn to in the end make this weird decision, and I think that it does it has to exist. You have to believe it. Otherwise, that last moment, you don't buy. You don't think, oh, what, is she just jealous because he was unfaithful? No, she would never do this. But, I mean, it's it's a lifelong buildup to this idea of belonging, I think. Um, and, and it's another one that is is so rooted in grief the like the whole film and and it's another one where god the lead performance how miserable how much crying can one person do <laughs> well and also the the scenes that spark the grief the telephone pole scene in uh, hereditary how brutal is that and then the opening of this one where they slowly show you what happened to her family that's just gutting yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And yeah. it's not the only time, you know, that and, and but it's so it's so jarring then when she gets and it's it's this beautiful outdoor and it's always sunny and these these two old people seem so honored. You know what I mean? And and it's like and the way this the way this community is about to treat death, death of these two sort of parental figures and the way that she's personally dealing with it are so polar opposite that of course when that that's smack the rock, the look on her face Lawrence Pugh, I mean, she's obviously in, in one year shown that she's a remarkable, phenomenal talent. But uh, that scene, that look on her face when the first person hits the rock is just perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked that scene, too, um, because it's like we always, you know, as I think culturally, at least the culture I grew up in, it's, you know, you don't talk about grief or death a lot. You know, mm-hmm. it's not something that you've have you don't it doesn't come up in conversation and like and like hope said uh when you know the podcast started about how some of the mainstream films it's almost like you're uncomfortable the characters are uncomfortable when someone's grieving so they want to make it stop in yep. some way they want to almost like grief is viewed as almost as a problem like let's cure this person's grief yes which if you have ever grieved you know it, for me grief never stops right like it's an ongoing thing so that that scene was just so interesting because they're having to face it like head on in this most like <laughs> brutal visceral way. But I, I just found it highly symbolic and, and um, that, that scene in and of itself, like if you took it outside of the film could prompt so many different discussions about how we talk about grief as a culture, about euthanasia, about who's, you know, I mean, there's just so many different branches you could go off with just that scene alone. Face it. I see what you did there. Good one. I knew you would do that. <laughs> he does that to me all the time. <laughs> and also, I would we would recommend, because we went back then later and saw the, we watched the director's cut, which adds, what, about a half hour or so? And we thought it was even deeper. We thought that the, the film resonated even on a deeper level. Just the, some of the characters, especially the a couple of the other side characters, were fleshed out more. And I really enjoyed the director's cut as well. Yeah, I, I loved it too. And I like what you said, though, about culturally. I think that that scene begins to explain what she's drawn to in this culture. And, the, and it's the way that they prepare, they plan to grieve, they openly grieve. They grieve together. They do it all the time. And I think it suddenly makes her feel like, first of all, I think at at verse, I think she's just off put by how bizarre that is. But as it wears on, I think 
she gives herself over to it because she has spent now all of this time pretending she's fine. And here, she doesn't have to because everybody's going to be sad with her. Right, especially when all those other women are crying with her and, and absorbing it for themselves. That's exactly right, yeah. And that is Midsummer number two. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> back to back. Ari Aster on our list of grief in horse. That leaves room at the top for number one, and this one is from 2009. And who does grief better than Lars von Trier? Happy-go-lucky <laughs> Lars. A grieving couple retreat to their cabin in the woods, hoping to repair their broken hearts and troubled marriage. But nature takes its course. Things go from bad to worse. And dare I say, chaos reigns in Antichrist. He said he wanted to help me! Where are you? Nature is saving church. The evil you talk about is an obsession. No! Does he want to kill me? Oh yeah. Oh wow, that's a great that's a great intro. I remember when I saw this film. I saw it in in New York at the IFC Theater, and I was I was so excited to see it, and it was it was quite an experience. I think with any of his films. I feel like all of his films are experiences for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. it, he really, yeah, he really takes you on a journey and I can't remember a single one of his films that has been easy to watch. Um, and I think that holds true with Antichrist. And for me, one of the most interesting parts about Antichrist as I watched it was, and this calls back to what Hope alluded to earlier, I think a little bit, it, it's about a grieving couple who've lost their child but the man in the relationship, the the father, um, played by William Defoe, he really tries to control his wife's grief. Oh yeah. And he t- yeah, and he takes on this arrogant, really arrogant stance toward it. Like he knows how he's gonna pull her out of this. Mm-hmm. Like he's going to he's gonna be the one to fix her. And I just thought that was so interesting how um you know Lars von Trier explores that through the course of the film. Yeah, because he openly, the character openly defies the standard of not treating someone in your own family. He just doesn't pay attention to that at all because you're exactly right. He will control her grief through this process. I always felt like that was because we don't get any of his grief at all. And, you know, you get the feeling that given how the how the tragedy happens, they probably both do feel responsible for what happened. But she that's all she focuses on. And he doesn't focus on it at all. And I think it's because he works past his own grief. He's avoiding his own grief by addressing hers. And that is what makes the most sense to me. Otherwise, I can't even understand how this guy is the little kid's dad. But I thought his performance was great. But, of course, again, as, as is the case across the board in these films that we're talking about, it's the female lead that is unbelievable. And, and Charlotte Gainsbourg, she's nuts anyway. I mean, in every, any movie <laughs> you see her in, you're like, wow, that doesn't seem like a part anybody would want to take. But she's just glorious in this film. Oh, absolutely. And, and like so many of his movies, it looks fantastic, especially the opening which is the movie is uh, separated in four parts. The first part is grief because it sets up what happens. But how he shoots that, my Lord, is it fantastic looking and yet so incredibly sad. And, and he often shoots things that way, that even when, even when something just totally horrific is happening and totally outlandish to him, my God, he makes it look good. Oh, yeah. I thought the whole film looked gorgeous. I think the opening, too, is interesting 
again, calling back to something Hope said, Hope says a lot of wonderful things um, <laughs> about you. how, uh, you know, that maternal loss sometimes is represented in film as that one insurmountable thing, you know, a woman can can go through. And I thought he really did an interesting thing with the opening to where you kind of have almost the, you know, you have the baby on the one side and you, ha you have them having really intense sex in the shower. Um, and he gets, you know, really up close with that. And I think there's kind of this layer, I always felt like throughout the course of the film, like almost a layer of, of sexual um, shame that's almost being processed and mm -hmm. kind of that juxtaposition of like the Madonna and the whore, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, I don't feel like the male character really has to process that internally because he just doesn't, the same cultural ideas and expectations aren't placed on him. So I think that's an added layer to her grief, which makes it all the more complex in the film. Um, at least as I felt and interpreted as I watched it. Well, I think, I mean, I think that that's, a, that's a, a savvy interpretation when you think about what happens at the end of the film, how she punishes herself, how she's decided that she's going to take it out on herself for what she did, mm -hmm. which it's quite a shocking moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, and, she, and she punishes him too. <laughs> she does. Which was equally shocking. I don't well, think it maybe, was. Maybe not equally, but it. uh it, it made me squirm a little bit. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's quite a film. And it's funny. You know, Lars von Trier, he's somebody I don't like all of his films. I dislike several of them, but I'll watch every single one. Right. Because, like you said, Sam, I mean, they're such an adventure. He's taking you on an adventure and you probably don't really want to be on it. But here you go. And one of the things I like about this is I think for me, it's his first it's his first horror film. And I don't know that he was trying to make a horror film. When he did set out to make a horror film, which would be The House of Jack Built, I thought that did not work nearly as well. I thought that there were segments of that movie that were glorious. And, of course, they were all the segments that were cut out when it was released because people are wusses. But I didn't think when he set out to make a horror film, it flew for me particularly well. But I just think I think Antichrist is such a brutal yet beautiful and uh, gloriously acted film. And it's another one that is basically a two-man show. And they don't even get names. It's just, especially her, but to a degree him as well. Just fearless performances. Yeah, and I think what this one doesn't have, which you talked about uh, the House of Jack built, I think what ultimately derailed that one is the same thing that derailed Nymphomaniac Part 2. Because I thought Nymphomaniac 1 was was a solid setup, and you're waiting for, for Part 2, and then it just... It just dissolved into self-absorption, I think. And I, I don't sense that in this movie as much, that he's trying to make some personal statement by shaking his fist at, at his critics. That's when he gets too much for me. But I'm with you. Even if a, a movie that I don't like, like Dancer in the Dark, <laughs> I will watch oh, it. That movie. I will want to see it. I always want to see what he's doing. One of the things I think is interesting is that is that um, his films always re they revolve around a, a female lead, except for The House of Jack Belt. It's always a female, and she's always punished his films are punishing but i don't think in any of the films including this one does it seem hateful it doesn't seem hateful to me until maybe nymphomaniac and very certainly the house of jack built that his the way that he chooses to to punish the female leads because i've always thought in his films the female lead to me always represents him himself he sees himself in that character which is just a bizarre and fascinating point of view for me. I don't even know if it's true or if I'm imagining it, but I think that it's the talent that he's drawn to his films, especially given the punishment that these leads are going to take, it's pretty remarkable, really. And then because of that, we always get these unbelievable performances. And, to, and I, without those, there's no way that these movies could possibly work. Antichrist, number one on our list of grief in horror.
as we've been celebrating that topic with Samantha Kuljesnik, author, filmmaker. Glad to have you here. Loved your insight. Where can we find you? Where can everybody find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Kuljesnik. It's K-O-L-E-S-N-I-K or at SamanthaKuljesnik.com. So by all means, check out True Crime. Her latest book, Grindhouse Press. And what was the new one you're just debuting? Uh, it's called Crossroads by Laurel Hightower, and that's coming out, out from my press on uh, August 10th. All right, fantastic. Well, we look ahead to the next Fright Club Live. This is going to be on Wednesday, July 15th. We don't quite know exactly what platform it's going to be on. We'll let you know. It might be Facebook Live, might be Vimeo, might be uh, pulling a rabbit out of a hat. I don't know. We're going to get it done. We probably won't be back at Gateway Film Center, because everything has been just, you know, how things are going right now in the country, pushed back even farther, which we hate to say and hate to realize we will be back in front of the crowd sometime, and we can't wait for that. But until, we'll let you know what platform that's going to be. But the next Fright Club Live, what are we talking? Ooh, that's right. The year is half over. It is. It is. And you know what? Um, We actually kicked around not doing a best first half of the year list, which we always do. We do one every single year. And we were like, you know what? This has been such a weird year. Maybe we can't come up with We did come up with a good list. We did. And on one hand, you can't believe the year is half over. On the other hand, you're kind of glad because this year has been, let's just get it done. Can we? Can we move on? But you're right. We looked back and we found better than, than I thought we would for that first half. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a good list. So we hope you will join us then. And in the meantime, you know how to get in touch. Keep the conversation going, as always. We'd love to hear what you think about any of these choices in the grief topic or any that we missed. Keep up with us at Fright Club Pod on Twitter, also on Instagram and Facebook. It's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where we can get all of our fun stuff, our written movie reviews, and our other weekly podcast about all the new movie releases coming out called The Screening Room. That is all at the main website at madwolf.com. So until next time, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Stay frightful, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>